deathbed, we will... Amen. We are in John chapter 14, and if you could stand with me, and let's read this text together. We're going to read verses 7 through 14. John chapter 14, verses 7 through 14, and if you could just follow along with me as I read. Jesus says, John 14, verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have you been so long? Have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. Context is the upper room. When I think of the upper room and what is happening here, words come to mind like disappointment, fear, confusion, bewildered introspection, bravado on the part of Peter, doubt, probably anger. All of these feelings and emotions are tempting the hearts of Jesus' disciples as they listen to Jesus speak. They are all together one last time in the upper room. Jesus has washed their feet. He has instructed them on personal humility and service to one another. He's exposed treachery. Judas has left. And furthermore, Jesus has now announced for the second time that he must leave them and that where he is going, they cannot come. And things were not working out as the disciples had expected. They had settled convictions about how all of this would transpire as they followed Jesus, but all of that now was falling apart. And so far, the news Jesus has for them is all bad. Their hopes, their plans, they're all disintegrating around them. And quite frankly, quite frankly, It's worse than they think. By this time tomorrow, Jesus will be dead. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows what's going to transpire. He knows how they feel. And so in chapter 14, he begins offering them comfort. He loves them. He loves them. And he doesn't want them to be destroyed by what's going to happen. And so out of protection for them and out of love for them, he speaks words of comfort. He's teaching them for the express purpose of comforting them and for stealing their faith against the coming storm. And so he says in verse 1 of chapter 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. What's that tell us? He's concerned that their hearts are going to be troubled. He's concerned about their disappointment, their fear, their bewilderment, their introspection, their bravado, their doubt and faithlessness and all of that. He's concerned that something would captivate their hearts, that they would become awed by something other than him and his father. Because whatever you stand in awe of is what controls you. He wants to orient them into the 
the appropriate direction of worship. He's teaching them, do not let your hearts be troubled because there is something glorious coming on the other side of this approaching storm. There is something glorious. There is the already, you have me. There is the not yet, you will have me in greater measure. And between the already and the not yet, there's a storm. And I'm just telling you, it's coming. I'm not going to tell you all the details about it. I know all the details about it. You don't need to know all the details about it. The storm is coming, but take comfort. I am going to prepare a place for you. I am leaving, but I'm leaving for a purpose, 10,000 purposes, one of them for your comfort, I will tell you, and that is, as I leave, I am leaving for a purpose, and that is to add to my father's house, as it were, wedding language, right? You're the bride, I'm the groom, we're going to get married, first I got to go to my father's house, build a special place for us. And then I will return and receive you unto myself so that where I am there, you may be also. Be encouraged. Don't let your hearts be troubled at the sound of this approaching storm. Thomas then verbalizes what might be interpreted as wavering doubt. The bad news Jesus had just announced was was a little bit hard to take and a little bit bewildering. And frankly, it was a little bit nebulous. I don't think any of them understood. And, and, and not only did none of them fully understand what was going on, I, I mentioned before in previous messages that Jesus says, one of you is going to be, betray me, but he doesn't define that. What does that mean? He doesn't know that somebody's going to turn him over to be killed. They don't know that. They don't know that it's Judas, and, and Jesus never tells them. They've got to discover that later on. Jesus is being particularly careful to show them, on the one hand, a storm is brewing, a storm is coming, it's going to be fearful, it's going to be hard. But he wants to give them just enough information to let them know this is going to be a difficult trial, but what lies on the other side is glory. Be faithful. Trust me. Trust me. And so, Thomas, with his wavering faith, looks at the bad news that he can't make a lot of sense out of. All he knows is Jesus is saying, I'm going away, and you can't come. And Jesus says, but you know the way that I'm going. And Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. It's, you think it's clear to us. It is not at all clear to us where you are going. And how can we know the way? And Jesus famously replies, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father. Now, there's a hint. Where are you going? To the Father. I don't think they get all these connections yet. They will later on. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, in the future, they would remember these words. We know that because John wrote them down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they would be greatly encouraged by them as we should be encouraged by them this morning. But right now, all they could think about is, what do you you mean you're leaving? (laughs) You're leaving us? How are we going to get along without you? I think this is the pertinent question churning through their minds. How can we get along without you, Jesus? We're nothing without you. Who will teach us? Who will lead us? Who will protect us? Who will guide us? Who will bring us all the way to the end, whatever that is? You ever been there? You ever been in a situation where you look at, at, uh, at the bad news coming your way and you think, what am I going to do? To whom shall I turn? How? Despair, fear. Have you ever experienced disappointment and fear so overwhelming that you were tempted to fall into utter despair? 
What am I going to do? How will I ever survive this? I feel abandoned. I feel alone. To what or to whom can I turn? I mean, this is where the disciples will be very soon. And Jesus knows it. So I think this whole passage is for their comfort. And I'm even more convinced when we get to the next section, beginning with verse 15, but more particularly verse 16, where Jesus starts telling them about how he will send the comforter, who is what? The Holy Spirit. And that's going to be wonderful to get into. So in this passage, Jesus is trying to comfort them. And so there are two ways I think he's comforting them. First, he points them to the comfort of knowing the Father, the comfort of knowing the Father. And secondly, he reveals the comfort of provision through the Son, provision through the Son. Now, we're going to take those apart, but let's look at it in the text. Number one, comfort in knowing the Father. How is Jesus going to comfort his men who know a storm is brewing? They don't know how bad it's going to be. Jesus is being pretty cryptic. He's trying to comfort them, and this is how he comforts them. Verse 7. Now, this is adding on top of, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I will come again and bring you to where I am that you may be there also in my Father's house. And in verse 7, he, he adds to that. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Now, let me just tell you from an interpreter's perspective, this is a difficult passage. In fact, both sections of this little pericope here, are difficult to interpret. And that's because it's even difficult to translate. And that's because Jesus is being intentionally cryptic and nebulous. He's being careful to give enough information, as I said, to let them know the storm is coming, but not enough for them to connect all the dots. And listen, from, from a pastor's perspective, I mean, trying to be clear from the pulpit when the original author is intentionally being unclear, that's hard. Someone said a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. So <laughs> I'm going to do my best to clear the fog out of here based on not only what Jesus says here, but elsewhere where we can kind of connect some dots. So there's difficulty in translating this verse, and a number of scholars understand these opening words here as a first-class conditional clause suggesting that the condition is true for the sake of argument. Now, here's what that means practically. When Jesus says, if you had known me, it could be just as easily translated, since you know me, since you know and have known me, since you know me or have known me, you also know the Father. And the idea here is that the 11 had come to know and be known by personal experience who Jesus really is. They, they, they do know him. D.A. Carson agrees with this in his understanding. He writes, it is better to take the words to mean, you know me, you will know my Father also. Now, this is extremely important because Jesus is telling them that even though he is about to leave them, he is not going to leave them alone. Now, as I said, in the next passage, He's really going to become clear about this, be going to talk about the Holy Spirit coming to be the comforter. But before he gets to the Holy Spirit, he goes to the Father. I'm leaving you, but you're not going to be alone. You have the Father. And over the past three years of ministry together, they have been getting to know Jesus. And as they have been getting to know Jesus, they have, however unwittingly, gotten to know the Father as well. At this point, Philip chimes in, in verse 8, where he says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Show us the Father. Now, Philip is, is really saying, perhaps the best thing you can do to satisfy our need right now 
and to help us with the confusion about what, whatever it is you're saying, the best thing you can do right now is to reveal the Father to us. We've not seen him. I mean, Peter, James, and John, they were up on the mountain, and Jesus hadn't been raised, and, and Jesus had told Peter, James, and John, don't even tell, don't tell anybody about this until after the resurrection. And so it could be here that, that Philip has no clue what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration when the Father comes in the Shekinah glory and he speaks. Philip wasn't there. Show us the Father. Let there be no mistake about this, beloved. Philip is asking for a theophany, which is a theological term from theos, God, a vision of God. Show us, show us God. Call him now, bring him into this room, have him speak. It's a theophany. It's an appearance of God, invisible form. It's exactly what Moses asked for. You remember when Moses, uh, he didn't want the job of going into Egypt to rescue God's people, um, and he came up with all kinds of excuses, and the Lord rebuked him and, and empowered him and sent him and And so he goes and he rescues the people. The ten plagues come by the power of God. He rescues the people out of Egypt, and he comes back to the same mountain. And there he is on the mountain, and the people rebel. And there's that whole golden calf incident that takes place. And and after that, I mean, Moses is totally frustrated. He'd been up there for 40 days. He comes down. he, He throws the tablets down. He breaks it as if, you know, the the day after the wedding, there's divorce, right? Here's the breaking of the covenant. And they put the pieces back together, and Moses goes back up to God, and, and, and essentially God is saying, look, these are your people, do something. And Moses is saying, no, 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 they're your people, do something. And God says, I'm God, and I'm telling you, you are going to lead these people through the promised land, or to the promised land, and I'm not going. And Moses says, if you don't go with me, I won't come. I, I won't go, I won't lead them. And... Moses finally gets around as the Lord and him are having this dialogue. Moses finally says, Lord, I will take them. But first, show me your glory. I want to see you. Not just your power. I want to see you. I will be satisfied if I see you. And the Lord did two things. Okay, I will let you see part of me, a very small part of me. The text says the hinder parts of me, the, whatever that means. And, and so God puts him in the cleft of the rock to hide him so that he doesn't die in front of the glory of God, right? Um, and then... That's God's visual glory, and then God announces his verbal glory. The Lord, the Lord God, the everlasting one. Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. He reveals himself. And we see this again in the book of Isaiah, chapter uh, 6, verses 1 through 6, where God is about ready to make Isaiah a prophet in the Old Testament, and he gives him this vision of walking into the temple, and he sees on the throne high and lifted up the king of glory, and the four living creatures are proclaiming with a loud voice that shakes even the threshold of the temple. The threshold is kind of that part under the doorways, that part of the foundation. Everything is shaking as these beings are declaring in the presence of God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What is that? It is a theophany. A theophany. There are lesser amazing theophanies in the Bible, like when Joshua comes to, he takes Moses' place. God is establishing him as a leader. First thing he's going to do is cross over the Jordan River. Second thing he's going to do is conquer Jericho. And you remember Joshua goes out by the river, and he's kind of looking across the river. You can probably see the lights at night of the city, and he's trying to, in his mind, think of how do we, how do, we do this, and a man appears to him. You remember? A man stands before him with a sword, 
And Joshua says, who are you? Are you for us or against us? And the man says, I am the captain of an army of angels. Now take off your shoes, for the place upon which you stand is holy. And that last phrase tells us something. This was no angel. This was God. It's exactly what he said to Moses from the burning bush. Take off your shoes. What is that? It's a theophany. It's a visible appearance of God. The pre-incarnate Christ, we might say. Philip is suggesting that a clear revelation of the Father would be enough to encourage them and his fellow disciples, no matter how big the storm. And to this, Jesus makes an astounding claim, namely, that he and the Father are one. Look at verse 9. Jesus said to him, remember Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, have I, been, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. I am your theophany. You want to see God? You're looking at him. I've been with thee Lo, these three years, you've seen me in every situation. Every time you turn around, I'm there. And every time you see me, you see the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? How can you say, show us the Father? One of the central themes of John's gospel is the unity of God the Father and God the Son. And, and unity in two ways. Ontological unity, for those of you theologically minded, you like those words. Ontological meaning um, of the same substance. Um, but here, more practically, he's, he's mostly when he talks about unity with the Father, he's talking about functional unity. What God thinks, I think. What God says, I say. What God does, I do. There's a functional unity between the Father and the Son. So much so that Jesus can say, when you hear me speak and when you see me act, when I do my works, you are seeing the Father. Not that he's not a different person from the Father, they are. In essence, one. In person, three. And I and the Father are one. And by the way, John wanted us to see this early on. Go back to John chapter 1. Watch this. Verse 1, okay, of John's gospel. What does he want us to know about Jesus? And believe so that we would have eternal life, as he says at the end of his gospel. In the beginning, this is John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and I won't go back and re-preach that message, but word here doesn't mean, you know, um, words like what I'm using now. It was this, this ancient thinking that whatever the first cause of all things was, it was intelligent it was powerful, and its power was set loose by word. And they knew, in Greek thinking, this being as the word. And so John is picking up on that in some sense and saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So whatever the word is, the word created all that is. Verse uh, 14, verse 14, and the word became flesh. This power, you think of power, now think of person, because this power, this 
being who created all things has become flesh. He's become a man. And he dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace, full of grace and truth. This word has always been with God. He took part in the creation with God. And then he, he entered into his creation with man. He is God. And verse 18. No one has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has put him on display. When we look at this man, we see the Father. John tells us that right up front, I am going to tell you a story that is how many chapters long? 20, 21 chapters long. 21 chapters it's going to take me to tell you about this man, but let me tell you in the beginning who he is. He's God. When you see him, you see the Father. And this is the whole point of the narrative that we pick up on in chapter 14. The apostles had a, a really high regard for Jesus, but they did not yet fully understand that he was the perfect, perfect representation and full revelation of God the Father. To see Jesus was to see him who is invisible. Yes, his invisible attributes are clearly set on display, Paul says in Romans 1, through the creation, but they are set on display more so in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why the author of Hebrews would begin his exhortation, I think picking up on John's theme. John chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, the author says this, God after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, has in these last days spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. Radiance, glory. We have anything to compare to that? I mean, a shadowy comparison of that would be. Now, be careful with this. Don't children don't do this literally. But if you could go outside and directly at the sun, you know what you would see? You wouldn't see the sun. You would say, "I see the sun," but you're not really seeing the sun. You're seeing what? The radiance of the sun's glory inseparable from the Son. And so it is with Jesus in an even more profound way. It means if you want to know God, you must know him through the Son. And so Jesus says, no one comes to me, no one comes to the Father except through me. Hence, back in John 14, verse 9, in this statement, which is staggering in its simplicity and profundity, James or Jesus claims, whoever has seen me, whoever has seen me, has seen the Father. You've seen the Father. And over the centuries, liberal scholars have often claimed that Jesus never claimed to be God and that we should view Jesus as a great moral teacher, not just a teacher of morality, but an example of morality in all that he said and did. Great moral teacher who by his moral life and moral acts and moral teaching changed the world. That's how we should see Jesus. C.S. Lewis, uh, of course, responds to that famously, and I won't read all of this, but just to remind you, and Lewis points out that kind of thinking is, is flawed and foolish because great moral teachers don't claim to be God. And if they do claim to be God, then they are either a liar or they're a lunatic 
with the intellectual prowess of a poached egg. But when you look at the record of Jesus and his claims to be God, his claims, he claimed repeatedly that he is one with the Father, that he is God. If he's not a liar and he's not a lunatic, there's only one other option. He is what? Lord. He's Lord. The fact is, Jesus repeatedly claimed to be God in the flesh. And that was the whole point of John's gospel, to demonstrate that Jesus is God, creator God in the flesh. And notice the proof he points to, namely, verse 10. His words, Do you not believe that I am the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own initiative. My initiative here means my authority. The words that I say, I do not speak of my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his work. Don't you understand that the Father abides in me in a way that he does not and will not ever abide in you? I and the Father are one. And when I speak, it is him speaking. When I work, it is him working. I don't do any of this on my own initiative. Whatever he does, I do. Whatever I see him do, that I do. Whatever he wants me to say, that I say. There is never, there is never any dichotomy between what the Father desires and what I desire. At any given moment, and there's no lag time. There's not the Father expressing his desire and the Son saying, let me think about that. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Have you, you know, challenge him in this way, in that way? No, 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 no. If the Father desires it, the Son already desires it. If the Father loves it, the Son already loves it. If the Father hates it, the Son already hates it. They are one in every conceivable way. He is God in the flesh. In verses 10 and 11, not only his words, which he spoke with authority, the authority of the Father, but also his, his works. And he mentions that. I do not speak of my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Now look at verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Listen, what's he saying? The works that you've seen me do, look, you were there when I calmed the storm. You were there when I raised the dead. You were there when I gave sight to the blind. You know that I wasn't kidding. This, these were not pranks. These were not jokes. This was, this was not some kind of an illusion. You were there. Even Judas was there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. You've seen these works, and you know. Even the blind man who was healed testified the obvious. Only God can do this. Only God can do this. This proved his relationship with the Father. These were enough evidences to prove that his claims were true. And all of this, beloved, was meant to give his disciples great comfort and assurance. As bad as things certainly seem to be, it's all being orchestrated by God the Father. God the Father and God the Son had a plan, and it could be trusted. Their plan, his plan, could be trusted. Not only that, but beginning in verse 15, as I mentioned, Jesus will promise the ministry of the Holy Spirit as well. Listen, whatever the storm you're facing, you have everything you need if you're a child of God. You not only have Jesus, you have the Father. You have the Father. For us, there's never any distinction between that. For the disciples, Jesus was there in bodily form, and he was leaving bodily. And Jesus was saying, but you have the Father. You have the Father. 
You have the testimony of the Father. You have the works of the Father. You know the Father. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob was their God still. And they had been walking with him for three years. Isn't that amazing? And so Jesus offered them comfort in knowing the Father. Second, Jesus offered them comfort in the provision of the Son. Look at verses 12 through 14. Let me just read them again. Truly, truly, I say to you that he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Okay, how's that for a text? Got your attention? What does he mean? Uh, when I realized I was going to this text, I thought, this is great. This is a great text. This would be good to preach. This would be good to learn. Jesus' claim here is nothing short of startling and unexpected. I mean, what would you want to hear after being told that the storm is coming and it's going to be a big, big one? I mean, big. Like, big, big like nothing, on the, nothing in human history had ever happened like this before. The Son of God is going to be arrested, falsely accused, convicted, and executed. And these men were going to be scattered. What would help you in that moment? Knowing the Father? That's fantastic. I mean, if that's all Jesus gave them, it would have been enough. But he doesn't stop there. I'm going to prepare a place for you. You have the Father. You've come to know the Father through knowing me. You know you can trust the Father because you've come to trust me. You believe in me. Keep on. By the way, it's, it's continuous action here. Keep on believing in me. And not only that, but the works that I do, you are going to do greater works. And to make sure that happens, I give you this promise. Whatever you ask of me, I will give you. I'll give you. You're not going to be, you're not going to have less provision than you had when I was with you. You're going to have more. So much more. So what is Jesus saying here? What he's saying applies to, um, to all believers. We need to, we need to ask ourselves, um, whoever believes in me will perform even greater works than these. And the question that should be on your mind, and it's on everyone's mind when you read this text, is what in the world does that mean? Do greater works than Jesus Let's make some observations and try to unpack this. Again, Jesus is being somewhat cryptic, and so some of this we can't be absolutely definitive on, but I'm, I'm going to take a stab at this. First, what Jesus is saying here applies to who? All who believe. Notice what he says. Um, verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do. Who, who's he talking about? He's talking about those who believe. The promise is not simply for the apostles, for some elite class of Christian. No, it's for all believers. What, whatever Jesus is talking about here is for you. And I'm not saying that simply to try to make this passage practical. It's just what he says. He who believes in me. So whatever Jesus is talking about is for you. If you're a believer, then the works that I do, you will do also. Um, we could look at this and say, and let's, let's go to the obvious place. You're, you're trying to interpret this. You're trying to interpret it in your mind. You're right now thinking, is what Pastor Dan is saying, is that right? And that's a good question, because don't trust me, 
Trust the word of God. It's your final authority, not me. So let me, let me help in thinking about this. Let's say he's talking about the apostles, and let's say he's talking about miracles. Um, first of all, if he's only talking to the apostles, then why say those who believe? I think it's broader than that. But when he gets talking about the greater works, if, if he means by that that we will do greater miracles, or let's say this, let's say he's talking about the apostles, they will do greater miracles than Jesus? <clears throat> um, I, don't think, I don't think anybody who's written on this holds that position, at least nobody that I've seen. Because even as wonderful as the miracles were that, that the apostles did, to my knowledge, they never calmed a storm. They never raised the dead like, they raised the dead, but not like Jesus did with Lazarus. There are things that Jesus did that just can't be, that, that were never duplicated or exceeded. Um, so I don't think that's what he's talking about. So let's say it's not the apostles. Let's just say it's everybody. Well, that's fine too. But if we're talking about greater works, again, what do we mean by that? That we're going to walk on water? That we're going to raise the dead? Um, Jesus seems to be saying that if you are a believer, this will be true of you. And so you see the problem. We run into a problem here. Even John Piper, who claims to be a theological charismatic he says, we create for ourselves an insurmountable obstacle if we think that what Jesus is talking about is doing miracles. Does he mean that we, walk on, we will walk on water or raise the dead or heal the sick? If you don't do that, then you're not a believer. And what's helpful with this is if you look at the teaching of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, you have a contrary text because Paul says, will all, do all of you perform miracles? Do all of you speak in tongues? You're different members of the body. Not everybody is going to have all of those gifts. So not even the charismatics understand it this way, at least those who are thinking and, um, and really trying to wrestle with this text. There does seem to be a connection here between verse 11 and 12. The connection is a connection, watch this, between believe and works. Believe in me, that is, keep on believing that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works. At the very least, what Jesus is saying here is that when I do these works, as I have done these works, they have helped you to believe. They've helped to knock down any obstacle to your belief, to tear down your unbelief. When I do these works, it helps you overcome unbelief. So keep that in the back of your mind. What are these greater works, whatever they are? The works that Jesus did, they were all about it. That's why, why, uh, why John includes seven signs. He's trying to tear down unbelief and bring us to a point of believing the second observation here has to do with the phrase, the works that I do. The works that I do. Now, if you have Bible software, free or otherwise, you could take that phrase, the works that I do, plug it into your computer and say, is this phrase used anywhere else? And it is used in one place. Um, John 10, verse 25. The works that I do bear witness about me. So there it is explicitly. Whatever these works are is really not the issue. What these works do is the issue. And the issue is they help people believe in him. They bear witness about me. Now again, that doesn't tell us what kind of works we will do, but it does tell us the goal. The works that we will do, if they are works like his works, are going to bear witness about Jesus. That is, these works of ours are going to tell people that Jesus is Lord. He is the Son of God. 
you can place all of your hope, all of your trust in him. Moreover, Jesus' works are designed to glorify the Father. We see this in John 17 where Jesus says, I glorified you on earth. This is Jesus praying to the Father. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the works that I came to do. And what was the purpose of those works? He's glorifying the Father, but he was tearing down unbelief. He was helping people to see that he was one with the Father. He's the Son of the Father, that he was the Creator God, the Messiah. Jesus' work was to glorify the Father. And there is a connection with us. We, too, are repeatedly told in the New Testament that we have work to do. It is work that glorifies God. It is work that points people to the Son. For example, Jesus said these words, very familiar, famous words. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your, what? Good works and glorify your heavenly Father. So Christians are defined by works or lives which flow from faith in Jesus, point to the glory of Jesus, tearing down unbelief, and hence glorifying the Father. Now, think with me, according to John 17, God sent Jesus to work in such a way that would glorify the Father. But look at what we read in John 20. Just turn with me just a few pages to the right. John 20, 21 through 23. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. This is after the resurrection. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. So there's a connection. As the Father has sent me into the world, right? So I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they will be retained. You know what that tells me? God the Father sent the Son to do works that tear down unbelief and create, at least cooperate with the Spirit in creating belief in people. Belief in what? Belief in Jesus as Messiah. Now Jesus is sending his men out and us out into the world to do the same thing. And it's a gospel work. It's a, it's a work about the forgiveness of sins. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Go and speak and live in such a way that tears down from people's minds anything, any obstacle to coming to know the Father through the Son. These are your works. But in what sense will believers do greater works than Jesus? Greater works. He's speaking to every Christian Whoever believes in me, and and that tells me that whatever he's speaking of, if it's not true of you, then maybe you're not a Christian. If these works aren't evident in you, whatever these works are, then maybe you don't believe. Maybe you haven't repented. Think with me back according to John 17. Uh, God sent Jesus to do his work. And then we read, I'm sorry, in John 20, the connection between our work and the Father's work. And then Jesus explains that he sends his disciples to do what the Father sent him to do. And then he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, which is almost the same pattern of what we see in 14. The next thing Jesus is going to talk to us about is the Holy Spirit. And perhaps Jesus speaking uh, about, uh, or, or, or reading that Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. What is that? 
might it be a parable of what they were about to experience in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit really would come upon them in power. And then the apostles really would be able to do miracles, signs, and wonders. This all sounds like gospel work to me. It's as though um, when we think about doing greater works, think of this. It's not as though no one was ever forgiven in the Old Testament. It's not as though, uh, you know, Jesus is saying, Whoever, whatever sins you forgive, I forgive, essentially. He says the same thing, by the way, in, in uh, Matthew 18, when he's talking about church discipline. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. If you say this person, um, if you've got to make a decision on church discipline and say this person is an unbeliever, make that decision because where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there with you in the midst. He's not saying have a prayer meeting. He's saying I am with you. This is a hard decision. Make it on my authority. But it's not as though no one was ever forgiven of their sins before Jesus died on the cross and went to the Father. But those early disciples would do it based on the finished atonement. After the cross, it was done. They were no longer looking forward. It had all happened. Everything Jesus said would happen had happened. The Son came into the world. He lived righteousness for 30 years at least. He was crucified. He was dead and buried. He was raised again. He ascended back to the Father. These were were the times and still are the times after the cross when the atoning work is done. And here's another way in which they are greater. They have been exponentially multiplied as God, through his people, has done his works and is doing his works by our lives and by our words that tear down unbelief and help people to believe in Jesus. I think this connects beautifully with such statements that Paul makes. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Why? Because everything you do Everything you do has the potential to help someone who you may not realize is watching you. It may help them believe. It may help tear down unbelief in Jesus Christ. The fact is, Jesus said at one point in Matthew eleven eleven, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than who? John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the greatest man who ever lived in his time. And Jesus says, oh, there are going to be some who are greater. The least in the kingdom of heaven are greater than John the Baptist. Perhaps there's, there's more going on here. Perhaps there's more to see than, than what I see in this text, and I'm happy to learn from you as well about these greater works that Jesus speak of. But they certainly involve the works that we do to help people believe in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that living like this is going to be easy, but we're able to do the greater works because, verse 12, Jesus has gone to the Father, and now whatever we need in order to do the works of God, he has freely given us in abundance. It is ours simply for the asking. Look at verses 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that, and here it is, tied all back together, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This isn't carte blanche. This isn't, you know, some people think, you know, if, uh, if I want a new house, all I got to do is, is pray it in Jesus' name. You put the magic words at the end of the prayer, and God has to give it. And some in 
And certain sects of Christianity will look at this and say, well, there aren't any qualifiers. It's just ask and you will receive. Ask. But there are qualifiers in the text, not only here in John, but in other Gospels. For example, John 15, 7, it says, if you abide in me, ask whatever you will. In 1 John 5, 14 and 15, if you pray according to his will, he hears us. In Mark 12, 24, if you believe that you receive it. And then here in team, if you ask in my name. Listen, you can't lift one of these passages out and say none of the other passages about prayer apply to this. They all apply. And they're all basically summarized here. Ask in my name. Ask according to my character, my work, my will. What does it mean to ask in Jesus' name? Again, it's not a magic formula for getting what you want. Rather, it's praying in Jesus' name means you come as Jesus' representative to the Father intent on doing Jesus' business. What is it that you need? And you know what? Sometimes it's just little things. I mean, you might at some point in your life need $10,000 <laughs> to do what you know God wants you to do. Ask. You know, pray big or go home. <laughs> Most of the time, it's, Lord, help me right now not to sin with my mouth. Give me what I need. I know it's your will. I know you would not have me sinning and bolstering people's unbelief. God, help me to resist this temptation. Right now, I feel it. I'm on the internet. This thing popped up out of nowhere. God, Lord, I need to talk to someone in the body. They don't want me to talk to them, and I don't want to talk to them. But I know it's your will. You gotta give me what I need. You gotta give me what I need. Lord, I don't know if I can bear the pain any longer. This disease, the doctors have been trying to heal this. Help me not to dishonor you. Help me every time I have the chance to talk to someone and they, they bring about the conversation to the topic of how am I feeling? May you be glorified. May I speak words that help tear down their unbelief. They see the hope that is in me and want what I have, namely Jesus Christ, give me that. Jesus is saying, whatever you need to do the Father's will, you will have. Just to ask. Just to ask. Talk about an impetus for prayer. I mean, talk about motivation for after you get done the worship service to grab someone, pull them aside and say, what do you think is going to come up this week? What, what's your biggest challenge you're facing this week? How can I pray for you? Do you understand that Jesus says, you will do greater works than these, the works that he has done. Maybe they will, they will bear greater fruit. They will multiply out. Why? Because you've asked for what you needed. You have the Father. You have the Spirit. You have the Son. You have everything you need. Just ask. Ephesians 2.10, Paul said, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Don't downplay those works as if they are insignificant. Jesus said, in some sense, your works will be greater than his, this side of the cross and resurrection. So work and pray and watch God provide everything you need to do the work of God. Philippians 2.13, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, I think sometimes <clears throat> we view our Christian life like getting into the Brazos River, not in a speedboat or even a canoe, but in an inner tube. And we're just floating downstream. We've got no goals. We're not working really hard. 
We're not thinking about helping people tear down their unbelief, living in such a way that causes people to say, hey, why is that sick person who's faced so much tragedy, why do they have so much hope? We're not thinking about that. We're not strategizing. We're not giving. We're not partnering, as Keith taught us this morning, with other people for the express purpose of doing the works of God. And yet, if you know Christ, you want to. And the motivation behind doing them, in part, is that Jesus said, are you amazed at the works I've done? I'm telling you. Yours will be greater. Yours will be greater. Because I go to my Father. You see, beloved, if you belong to Christ, then you have everything you need to do all that God wants you to do. Let's pray. Lord, this is a difficult passage, and, and yet we see in it glimpses of your majesty and your glory and your great and gracious love for us, concerned about our comfort when we are in need, concerned that we have every provision to do the work you've called us to do, and so we praise you. Help us to be diligent, not only in our jobs to accomplish for our employers, not only in our homes so that our children would be raised in an acceptable manner to win them good jobs so they can make more money, but help us rather, Father, be all about the glory of Jesus Christ in us, whether we eat or drink or dress or play or work or suffer. May it all be done to the praise of your glory that people would see the awe and wonder and the excellencies of Jesus Christ. All of this we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.